Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. We're joined today by Dr. John Cavadini, director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and professor of theology at Notre Dame. He's here to talk with us about the tradition of Marian processions and May crownings, because he and the McGrath Institute are hosting one that you're invited to next Saturday, May 4th, at 10.30 a.m., beginning at Notre Dame's Grotto. Information on this May crowning is available at mcgrath.nd.edu slash May crowning. John Cavadini, welcome to the show. Thank you for welcoming me. I'm pleased to be here. Very good. So you revived the tradition of a Marian procession and May crowning at Notre Dame several years ago, bringing back something that had been at Notre Dame's campus previously. Why were you interested in reintroducing this practice to Notre Dame's campus? I guess partly because my grandchildren were involved in a May crowning at their school. Uh-huh. And I was moved by it. I was moved by the beauty of it. And I thought, wow, here's something beautiful from the tradition, which has kind of lapsed in a lot of Catholic settings. I was started wondering, could we bring it back? Not as an act of nostalgia, because nostalgia doesn't you know, serve anybody except the past, but as a way of sort of recovering a beauty that we had forgotten. Well, hasn't been as present to us, and how could we make it present in a way that was fully at home, you know, in a contemporary setting? Yeah. Do you think that part of the reason it lapsed was the visibility of the event, of a procession across campus out in public? Is is visibility part of what makes us a little anxious about it? It it could be, but I think it lapsed along with much of Marian devotion. I think Marian devotion— and devotion to the Blessed Mother, practices associated with it, just started seeming implausible to Catholics after the Second Vatican Council. I don't think that was the intention of the Council, but somehow it began, at least in certain um, countries, socioeconomic categories, just to die away. Hmm. So what happens at a May crowning for those people who aren't familiar with it, and why does what happens matter? Okay, so a May crowning in its essence, evokes the fifth glorious mystery of the rosary, Mary is crowned queen of heaven and earth. And it honors that mystery by, in a sense, reproposing it Mm -hmm. through a procession with an image, a statue of the Blessed Mother, which culminates in the crowning of the statue, usually with a crown of flowers or something like that. The procession is of varying lengths, but it's a prayerful procession, and it's also very beautiful. People carry flowers to present to the Blessed Mother, in a sense. Everyone gets a flower, at least, but sometimes people bring their own flowers, even. And I've even seen little kids picking dandelions along the way. (laughs) Um, There's something very personal about the May crowning. There's something very personal about offering flowers to the Blessed Mother. That's another thing that's kind of left. But if you try it, if you actually bring flowers to a statue of the Blessed Mother and present them to her, if you go on a May crowning carrying flowers that you intend to present to the Blessed Mother, there's a kind of personal moment there. It doesn't duplicate anything else. It's a gift. You're giving something as an act of appreciation, a personal appreciation, 
And all of a sudden, it, I don't know, it kind of fills your heart with meaning that you didn't expect. I, I always say that any flowers that you give to the Blessed Mother, you get back. They bloom in your soul. They come up in your soul somehow. She gives them back to you. Hmm. Anyway, so this, this act um, of participating in or, um, yeah, participating in the proposal, the proposing, reproposing of the fifth glorious mystery of the rosary in a very personal way is really what happens at a May crowning. Why is that mystery so significant, and how do we, how do we lose track of it or forget it? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason that May crownings kind of lapsed, along with a lot of Marian devotion, also applies to the fifth glorious mystery of the rosary. I think people don't quite know what to do with it. What does it mean? It starts to seem like, I don't know, a relic of the past when there were kings and queens, as though we were somehow trying to get back to, I don't know, Christendom, where Christian kings ruled and there were Christian queens or something like that. It seems implausible to people. But I worry that there's a deeper implausibility that this kind of um, surface implausibility, if I could put it that way, reflects. This is my worry. That is, it says in the Catechism, quoting Paul VI, that devotion to Mary is intrinsic to Christian worship. Okay, not icing on the cake, not sort of accidental to it extrinsic, in, in other words, but intrinsic. And why is that? So if you think about it, it's because devotion to Mary, saying the Hail Mary, participating in Mary, devotion to Mary reminds us vividly that the incarnation is not a concept, but a person. Concepts don't have mothers. Concepts don't need their diapers changed. <laughs> Concepts don't nurse. Concepts don't utter little crying and wailing noises like all little children do. Babies do. Human beings and persons do. So the more you're devoted to the Blessed Mother, it's not that you're worshiping the Blessed Mother. The more you're devoted to the Blessed Mother, the more you're worshiping, the more you're put into the mind of worshiping the incarnate Christ because you begin to realize how far he emptied himself. The one who is in charge of the universe, who's almighty, became weak for us, as Augustine puts it. Weak meaning completely dependent kind of weak. Ever seen a newborn baby? I have. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> Many times. Um, devotion to Mary is a way of opening our heart more and more and more to the very concreteness of the incarnation, that God really did become human. And the idea then of Mary crowned queen of heaven and earth what does that mean? It's part of this meaning, that the incarnation is a permanent dispensation. It doesn't go away. It's not as though with the resurrection, you know, God, the word, puts his, hangs his humanity on the, you know, on the door to heaven, like, well, I'm done with this one. <laughs> uh, I, I wore this, I'll send it to the cleaners or something. And it's, no, it's a permanent dispensation. It's a marriage. That's why the marriage imagery is so important, because it's permanent. It's a permanent betrothal. It's a permanent self-gift of God, the divine bridegroom, to us. And the crowning of Mary, queen in heaven and earth, points to the permanency, the permanency of the incarnation, that it's never rendered obsolete. His mother is present, crowned queen of heaven and earth, because it's through her yes, it's through her charity, her love, that the incarnate word found a home in this world with us. And so to crown that love, 
queen of heaven and earth means to propose and to confess that the incarnation is is a concrete person and still is a concrete person now in the triumphant victory of love. And the presence of the Blessed Mother is a way of our confessing the presence of the Blessed Mother as queen of heaven and earth in, is a way of not detaching even the risen Lord from his humanity, not, not detaching the mystery from its concreteness. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking to the director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, Dr. John Cavadini, about the Marian procession and May crowning he's hosting on Saturday, May 4th, 1030 a.m., beginning at Notre Dame's Grotto. So in following what you're saying about reclaiming, remembering the fifth glorious mystery of the crowning of Mary as Queen of Heaven and Earth, it seems very much that our hope our hope, what we have to hope for in the end, is tied up in this crowning of her. It's not simply about her. It's about claiming for ourselves what the promises of Christ will mean in the end. It absolutely does mean that. It's connected to the fourth glorious mystery, which is the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary into heaven, body, and soul. This is good. We can just go backwards all the way to the, to the five glorious, and then we'll transfer mysteries. Well, if you think about it, it's Paul F. Dachenboff who said that the title Mother of God mm-hmm. contains all of Christian faith. Because hmm. in order to explain that title, you have to explain who Christ is. Therefore, you have to explain the Trinity, etc. Yeah, so there's a way in which to also to explain um, the crowning of Mary, Queen of Heaven, working backwards, right. it opens up the whole vista of Christian faith. But the assumption means that there is in heaven, there, there is a fully redeemed human person in heaven. Christ is the eternal word of God made human. So he's not a created person. He, he has a created human nature. Mm-hmm. Mary is a redeemed, created person, and she's the only one. And the point is that she therefore becomes what we call an eschatological icon, or eschatological image of the church, of the whole destiny of the church. So that looking at Mary, we see the hope of our own flesh and our own person to be fully redeemed. Is this what your grandchildren came home from school talking about, the eschatological icon that they, <laughs> that they witnessed in a May crowding? They did not come home talking about that. Uh, they came home having, having um, participated in something very beautiful that gave them um, a memory that etched itself in their memories and that won't go away. This is what I want to provide our students with yeah. and anyone who wants to come, a memory of something beautiful that won't go away, to which... Eventually, these kinds of ideas can cling. Hmm. But finally, the image, the participation is primary, just like it always is in the Catholic faith. The Bible, you know, proposes to us as images, the image of the woman clothed with the sun, the image of the pierced heart of Christ hanging dead on the cross. These images are plenipotentiary. They're revealed. They're intended to fill our own imagination And since they're proposed by the Holy Spirit, these images filling our imagination fill our imagination with the Holy Spirit. Mm. And then, okay, one's heart becomes progressively moved by them, open to them, and the ideas, you eventually are able to articulate them. This is what we call faith-seeking understanding, but it's the image that comes first. And so participating in the procession like this is kind of like putting yourself in the image. Mm -hmm and experiencing yourself as part of that image. 
Now, this seems to have some kind of consequence for how we would think about evangelization, because as you said, participation is primary, which is a deeply Catholic thing. But I think we often think that understanding is primary. And once I understand or at least understand well enough, then perhaps I'll participate. So how does this flip this around? And like, how do we propose, we propose participation first and then waiting on understanding? Don't you think, in a sense, the whole Christian mystery, first of all, is founded on an act, is founded on acts of love, lavishly poured out, the self-emptying of the word, and all the images that accompany it, swaddling clothes of the baby Jesus, the incarnate word, the one through whom the whole universe was made, is wrapped in swaddling clothes. So our own participation in these Christian mysteries is always primary Mm -hmm. and is always plenipotentiary. There's always more there than any concept can fully grasp. And if you reduce evangelization or apologetics to argument and to reasoning, don't get me wrong. I am not saying (laughs) that apologetics does not involve arguments and reasoning. It does. But no one's faith is based on argument or reasoning. If you say that, then you're basically reducing the faith to reason. It's something which which isn't faith then. What the argumentation can do as it generates certain kind of intellectual understanding in someone is clear away objections. It's as though we're looking at an icon of the face of the Lord, or we're invited to look on an icon of the face of the Lord, but it's been disfigured by kinds of dirt and grime and marks and stuff. And so, um, you know, if you erase those marks, if you erase all the disfiguration, you got a chance at actually encountering that beautiful face. That's what apologetics is. It's using arguments to erase caricatures, to erase misunderstandings, to release a true understanding which could help someone open their heart. But the point is the encounter with the Lord is what converts people. And that encounter is found in participation. It's found in participation in the liturgy. It's found in going through all the um, liturgical actions of self-giving, giving flowers to the Blessed Mother. It's a small thing, mm-hmm. but it's, it's an action that you can't understand without having done it. Mm-hmm. Once you do it, then you can write encyclopedias about it, <laughs> about what it meant. And I think that to help someone understand why you'd participate in a May crowning, you know, to offer the arguments, is in a way to you know, start erasing some of, those, some of the ways in which the face of Christ, the icon, has been marred so that you can see the icon, so that you can see that face and have that encounter. Okay, so the arguments so that you would maybe be leveraged to participate, but it's in the participation that you have the encounter. Nothing can replace that encounter as... John Paul II has told us, as Pope Benedict has told us, and now Pope Francis is reiterating using even the words of Benedict, that encounter is primary. I am not anti-intellectual, and I don't <laughs> like it, arguments are important, and so is theology. But in the end, reason doesn't leverage faith. It can't. Otherwise, you're reducing faith to reason. I had this moment, it was several years ago at this particular Marian procession and May crowning, and 
for those who know Notre Dame's campus, you start at the Grotto and walk across campus and by the LaFortune Student Center. And as the procession was passing by the Student Center, so there's a statue of Mary in front and then people are following behind, lots of people and laying flowers on the ground. A tour group came out of the Student Center with lots of, I don't know, prospective students, people <laughs> visiting. And I just in that flash imagined this is confirming for many all of their fears about a Catholic <laughs> university, right? Like here is this whole group of people following behind a statue of Mary and them not knowing that this is a special event. But to your point, there's also a witness value in that, that those people will remember this place based on that image of, oh, yeah. And then there was a some kind of procession of people following behind the that's, statue of Mary. That's absolutely true. And you know what? I like to like it, it is true that so many people watch. Yeah. But some people will start participating. But even more importantly, because we strew, you know, rose petals uh-huh. um, as we go along, uh-huh. you can follow the path of the procession through the rose petals that are on the sidewalks. It's kind of like traces of grace. But it's also mm-hmm. traces of grace are traces of beauty. And I think anybody watching that procession and also noticing the traces of beauty, the traces of grace, they come away with a, with a sense of having witnessed something beautiful and being intrigued by the beauty of it and being maybe drawn in by that beauty. And those rose petals are there, if it's not windy, for a long time. <laughs> At least till the landscaping crew comes around for some kind of event around here. But Right. Yeah. So I like to think of those, those the rose petals left on the sidewalks as kind of an image of the traces of beauty that it leaves in your soul. Hmm. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking to the director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, Dr. John Cavadini, about the Marian procession and May crowning. He's hosting on Saturday, May 4th, beginning at 10.30 a.m. at Notre Dame's Grotto. Now, do you think there's some special significance to this happening at a Catholic university dedicated to Our Lady? So as you mentioned, you know, it was happening at your kids' school. Some people may be familiar with this from their parishes or maybe at diocesan May crowning, but to take place on the campus of a Catholic university and one dedicated to Our Lady. Absolutely. It's another reason that I that I wanted to, um, you know, reinvent the, the May crowning at Notre Dame because we are a, a university dedicated to Notre Dame, to Our Lady. And it goes right to our foundation. Father Soren was incredibly devoted to Our Lady. He founded the periodical Ave Maria, and he himself personally edited and wrote in the first couple of volumes. And I've, I've gotten those out and read them. They're astonishing in the way that the Marian devotion of Father Soren was integrating of so many dimensions of the university or of the school as he saw them. So devotion to Mary has a kind of, has a kind of elevating character to it, a sort of healing character to it, actually, because anything integrating is healing. And my conviction is that if we go back to these Marian roots, we'll find our university culture elevated. We'll find a kind of source of healing for, I don't know, a lot of the troubles and problems that all universities have from time to time. Um, It's nothing unique to Notre Dame. But what's unique to Notre Dame in a Catholic university is we have a point of integration that is not available in a secular school. And it's a point, this point of integration is a point of great beauty. It's a point at which our souls are able to echo with this kind of beauty and to learn to live in it, to learn to live surrounded by it. So that was definitely one of my thoughts to go mm-hmm. back to those roots. Now, when I want to ask you about something that 
it's not immediately related to the make running, but you were in the news just recently, and I mean like the mainstream news, the real news. Maybe it's real, maybe it's fake news, but it it gets recognized as real news. This so is real news. It was real news. You were interviewed for an article that appeared <clears throat> on CNN's website about the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. In the interview that you provided, you talked about in particular people's reactions to the fire, reactions that you saw personally and others that you were you know witnessing along with everyone else watching on TV. What was it about people's reactions that caught you? Yeah, what was it about people's reactions? At first, it was my reaction. What was it about my reaction yeah. that caught me? As I, I was watching just on Twitter <laughs> from time to time, you know, images of the, of the church burning and of that steeple burning and then tottering. Mm. I, wanted, I did start to cry, actually. I, I was shocked at how much I cared about it. And then I, walking around on campus, I found another faculty member crying mm. and seeing some of the... Um, some of the ex- ex- exhibitions and expressions of grief, really, it struck me, this is ex- these are expressions of grief. They're expressions of mourning. And it struck me that you wouldn't find this precise tone or this precise depth of expression of grief just because artifacts of Western culture were destroyed. You could say at the destruction of a museum, like even the Louvre or uh, let's say even the Vatican Museum, a fire there it just it would it would be a tragedy, yes, but uh, would not generate this kind of I don't think this kind of sense of mourning of grieving as you though you had lost a friend. A parallel case would be you know the Vatican Museum might burn, but what if St. Peter's had burned? Hmm. I mean that you can see, and I told my students I talked about it with them. It's kind of it mattered that it was a church. It mattered. It's not a museum. It's a church. It had artifacts in it, but it's a church. And all of a sudden, I think what happened was people found an investment in their hearts that they hadn't realized. Some of us, some of them, some of us, that we still kept at that intensity. Mm-hmm. That it seemed like, I don't know, um, maybe we had sort of parked our spiritual ideals and lodged them in this church and asked her, as it were, the Blessed Mother, the church, patroness of the church, to take care of them. And when the church burned, we had to actually... We found them again. They were there in our heart. And maybe Western culture or the people of it are not as so secular as they thought themselves to be. And this could be a way that God is opening our own hearts to spiritual ideals, which are irreducibly spiritual, Hmm. not simply cultural, artistic. I can't find another word. They're irreducibly spiritual ideals. And that's what was expressed in this huge outpouring of grief, real grief. Amidst that destruction, which was so hard to watch, there were also questions of, especially with all that was saved, is there a miracle here? How would you respond (laughs) to that? Yeah, there was that beautiful image released of the cross kind of shining, Mm. maybe with the light of the morning sun, debris everywhere that had fallen from the ceiling, water damage. But there was the cross, there was the altar, and incredibly, there were the candles. Yeah, is this a miracle? I guess um, miracle, it depends on what your bar is for a miracle. I mean, do you want to insist it's a violation of natural law where you'd have to do all the, is it explainable, not explainable in any natural way? I don't know. You'd have to investigate. But a miracle basically is a wonder that's a sign, a sign of something else. And so I would say something that strikes the onlooker as wondrous and yet points beyond itself qualifies. Mm-hmm. And in this case, think about it. It's the, 
The cross is the image of Christian hope. The cross is the image of Christ's victory, not just over a fire, but over sin and death. And to look on that scene and see the cross victorious, as it were, it moved me very deeply. I'm prepared to say it's a miracle. But what matters is, look, miracles don't prove the faith. I think a lot of people think, if only I could see a miracle, then I'd believe. What they really mean is, if I could only see a miracle, I wouldn't need to believe. But, <laughs> but that's not a miracle. Uh-huh. That's a demonic prodigy. The, the devil is always trying to get us to a position where we think we don't need faith anymore, or we've outgrown it. A miracle is precisely available only to faith. Because no matter, even if it's a violation of natural law, so-called, you can always hold out and Mm -hmm. say, well, we just don't know the natural law applying here. A miracle is visible only to faith anyway and increases and challenges and invites us precisely to faith. And what's our faith? Our faith is that Christ has triumphed over sin and death and that this miracle, however much or not a violation of natural law it is, points to that greater wonder. It's just like the resurrection of Lazarus. That's one of the most magnificent, splendid miracles ever. Somebody four days dead, that breaks all natural law. <laughs> but, but the point is, if that is only a sign, uh-huh. then what it's a sign of has to be an incredible, even greater wonder. That's how miracles work. It points you to the absolute greater wonder of the most precious love of the Savior who gave everything he had, all of his divine status, his whole self, everything to us. Self-surrender, completely a divine self-gift. That's what conquered sin, and that's what conquered death. That's the greatest wonder. Mm. I'm just thinking about the first thing you were talking about there with the cathedral, and then the second thing, the first thing being the stirring up of these latent spiritual longings within the people who were looking on all over the world, who yeah. perhaps didn't even know they had them. And maybe it is the case not to be too, you know, overly poetic about it, but that in each of these hearts, something like the cross and those candles was rediscovered as shining out, looking at this destruction of wanting uh, something That's from that place. not too poetic. That's just really beautiful. It's under poetic. I <laughs> but, so we started talking about the Marian procession, the May crowning. We're coming to the end here, so we should come back to that. Um, maybe the invitation to come to a May crowning, not to first of all understand it fully, um, but actually to participate first, maybe with the possibility of rediscovering some kind of longing or interest or wonder that you didn't even know was there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. And, it, it you know, it's not like a a huge, long investment of time. It's and there are cookies <laughs> at the end. That's right. right? There are <laughs> cookies plus. Cookies plus. Like better than cookies. That's right. Yeah, right. So you won't be disappointed in the cookies. Hey, we're celebrating the eschatological icon of the church. <laughs> we'll have eschatological cookies right. with, with cherries on top. So anyways, you're invited to join Professor Cavadini and the McGrath Institute for Church Life for a bilingual Marian procession and May crowning. The date is Saturday, May 4th. It starts at 10.30 a.m., and it begins at Notre Dame's Grotto. Families are absolutely welcome, and as we were just talking about, cookies will follow in a reception. For more details, you can visit the website, which is at mcgrath.nd.edu slash maycrowning, mcgrath.nd.edu slash maycrowning. Well, John, thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you. Good to have you. And thanks, everyone out there, for joining us on Church Life today. 